Forgive my curiosity, but what is that? That's my little octopusy. Welcome to Call of the Night Boys with me, Nick, and me, Gavin, and me, Matt. And today we're going to be talking about enjoyment, guilty pleasures, and youthful enthusiasms, introducing each other to things that we still like or love that may be uh, rather outdated or possibly embarrassing even at the time. Uh, What prompted you to choose this particular Topic, Nick. I was feeling a bit down about the world a few weeks ago and thinking, God, we need to, we can't talk about COVID again. It's just going to destroy my soul. But then I remembered um, Matt had talked about Red Dawn. Oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's quite good, isn't it? When you watch stuff that's just pure fun, but maybe aesthetically or morally questionable. I mean, in, in my case, I would say haven't watched and yet still mysteriously I have an opinion about it. (laughs) Well actually I want to start off by telling a a story about my brother. This was in 1985. What was the big film of 1985? Do you remember? Big summer hit. Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Uh, Of course. My brother and I, we thought it was the the peak of human achievement. About five, six months later, it was released on VHS. And our mutual friend came round, he lived up the road and said, guess what, guys, I've got out Back to the Future on on video. And my, my brother, who, by the way, was 15 at the time, was so excited by this news that he jumped for joy, punched the air so much that he punched this sort of chandelier light fitting in the hallway. <laughs> and the chandelier came down. <laughs> Annoying my mum. Did did he damage it? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, it had to be professionally fixed somewhere. <laughs> but you know what? Because I, I was speaking to him about this the other day, and he told me this story, and I thought, and he said he's even now, many many years later, thirty five years later, he still feels embarrassed about it. I don't know. I think it's rather sweet and lovely that he kind of lost control. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, cr- cr- cringes at the fact that he was so excited about Back to the Future. Yeah, cringes at the fact that he was so excited about Back to the Future and he was relatively old. I sort of said to him, I said, no, I think that youthful enthusiasm is actually rather lovely and we need more of it. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? I used to read a lot of fantasy novels when, uh, you know, kind of sword and sorcery type novels, Elric and all the Michael Moorcock stuff. Yeah. All of which is, some of it's quite good. Michael Moorcock's quite respected, isn't he? Mm, yeah, he is, yeah. Conan, perhaps less so. Yeah, I think so. Oh, Conan. I think the amount of fantasy novels I used to read when I was in my sort of early to mid-teens, it's probably something I, I wouldn't boast about nowadays. I think you wrote, you read quite a lot of the same things, the sort of Michael Moorcock, Elric of Mind of Own books and so on. I think Michael Moorcock, though, he might have been a bit more cool than Tolkien, who's Mm. got more of the zeitgeist. I I seem to remember, like, Michael Moorcock, and this is very, this is very shady, what I'm about to say, uh, because it's, it's built upon the shaky foundations of my memory. I seem to remember him calling Tolkien a bit of a fascist. 
right. because it created this race of orcs who were just evil and, you know, and ascribed to them characteristics of the people of the East. Yes, I've heard that before. So, you know, Moorcock might actually be cool. Do you I still think, like him? <laughs> with his drug fiend hero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, you wouldn't, so for instance, you wouldn't bring it up on a date. Depends on the date, really. Right. If, uh, if I sense they were a lover of sci-fi and fantasy novels in their youth. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. Stuff that I, I quite like, but which I find embarrassing. I think maybe Conan the Barbarian. Right. Okay. The film or, or the books? Uh, the film. Right. With Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's so bad. But I like it. I like it. Well, I watched it with my mum, and my mum said I thought his first comedy film was Twins. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean... The the acting is appallingly wooden, isn't it? On on all fronts, not not just Arnold Schwarzenegger. But you're right; it's kind of it's brilliantly bad. Like a lot of those sword and sorcery films from the sort of late seventies and eighties, uh, Hawk the Slayer. And I've never seen that. You've never seen Hawk the Slayer. Well, you've seen Conan the Barbarian, and that's as much as you need to say, I think. Hawk the Slayer is like Conan the Barbarian, and with a budget of maybe an episode of EastEnders. So it's definitely worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Like Conan the Barbarian without the high production values mm. then. Star Wars. Thing is, is I will still, I will unapologetically defend Star Wars. The whole, not the whole, not the whole shebang. No, 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 no. Like the the film. Well, what I thought of during uh, my childhood was the film Star Wars, which I understand now is called A New Hope. That's right. Right. Or Episode Four. Like, like the bit where, for example, Luke Skywalker has had the call to adventure. He's put it to his aunt and uncle that he should be allowed to you know sort of go off and pursue what he needs to do and they say no we need you here for another season and he goes out and he stares at the sunset and you see two suns setting Mm. and i think that's just brilliant yes when you hear that rising kind of john williams score Mm. Mm. um and that still gives me tingles when i see that but matt have you seen the the (laughs) Have you seen the Star Wars prequels or the Star Wars sequels, the new Star Wars? The Star Wars that I remember seeing uh, most clearly of all of the new Star Wars films. And I can't, the thing is, I can't remember exactly which one it was. I think it might have been the second one in the, um, where there was the love affair between um, Anakin and Amidala. The, the crowd got to the point where basically people just started laughing. <laughs> okay. Um, the portrayal of the love affair between Anakin and Amidala. And when it got, when it got to the point where they had the scene in front of the, like the roaring hearth, Mm. the whole crowd just kind of 
exploded into laughter. I seem to remember, remember Amidala had a, a costume change every five minutes or so mm. uh, throughout, throughout that sequence. It, it was that sort of spontaneous laughter which made me, uh, I think, more proud of London than I've ever been. <laughs> we watching it at, at the Odeon Leicester Square and, and people were just absolutely pissing themselves at this. And it, it was just it, like there was a kind of group decision on the, you know, few, I don't know, three or four hundred people who were inside that cinema. Like, yeah, OK, now we're watching the comedy film. Let's have fun. <laughs> I was just going to say there's a lot of terrible James Bond movies. And I say that as a, a James Bond aficionado uh, yeah. who always looked forward to there being a James Bond film on at Christmas. I seem to remember early to mid 80s was when they started to get quite bad. Maybe I'm wrong. When was Octopussy? 83. Uh, 83. I know that because I, I, I watched it because uh, it was suggested that that film would make an appearance <laughs> in the podcast. And I, I yeah. watched it. Fucking hell. Um, I thought that, like, the moment where the film resolved itself was where Bond, he was he was at this, this point on the run from the police, mm. trying to defuse an atomic bomb, and he went into a caravan and he changed into the outfit of a clown. Oh, and I yeah. Thought, I but... thought, okay, yeah, now I get it. Now the film, it, it makes sense now. Because up until that point, it was just like, what the <laughs> fuck am I watching? The film is pranking you. It's one of my favourite Bond films, that one, because it's, it's basically I, pranking you. I had a feeling you would say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think his clowning is actually pretty good. Uh, that's, that's one of the mm. best bits of, uh, sort of physical comedy in the whole, entire movie, I think. Better than mm. the appalling um, puns that tend to feature in Roger Moore uh, Bond movies. Well, in all of them. I have to say, though, when he's about to defuse the bomb in West Germany uh, on, a, on a U.S. Army base in West Germany, when, he, uh, when he's climbing over the circus ring and trying to get to the bomb and people are stopping him and clowns are kind of... Other clowns are sort of getting in his face and trapeze artists. I mean, it, I have to say, I think that, that sequence is brilliant. No, it is really Gen- well done. That's what I was saying. It's genuinely exciting and a bit nightmarish. But it's not James what you Bond. want from James Bond. No, James Bond is dressed as a clown, and then he's being stopped by other clowns. I mean, it's something, you know, there's an invention there that I just haven't seen in, a, in, in other Bond films, you know, particularly more recently. You know. uh, I think what's uh, fascinating about Octopussy is that it came after Fewer Eyes Only, which is, is the worst James Bond, James Bond movie. Oh, no. No. Apart, f- apart from, uh, obviously, no. some of the re- recent disastrous ones, in, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, but then they made one which was almost as bad, but was so ludicrous that uh, you, you sort of warm to it a little bit, particularly the island full of um, beautiful assassins who just walk around in gauzy silks <laughs> all the time. Yeah, I love that. They're all lost souls, aren't they? They're all, they've all been on the hippie trail and they're lost souls, right? They, they are basically a bunch of middle-class hippies <laughs> yeah, who yeah, had one too many acid tabs when they're in Kashmir or somewhere. But and, now they're uh, but now they're um they found a purpose to serve octopusy, 
to do ninja stylings and wear lovely cat suits. Yeah. Stuff. I don't know what they are. Sort of like uh, leather underwear. In yeah, some cases. That, that, yeah. Yeah, that's sort right. Yeah. Of, uh, strange kind of belly dancer look. Yeah. I still can't work out the what plots of octopusy. I haven't got a clue. Oh, there's yeah. Something no, do, there's something to do with, a, with a Russian jewellery, a bomb, a le- an island full of ladies. I mean, they basically mm. just, it's like um, they put like uh, Scrabble tiles in a bag and then just, <laughs> <laughs> and then just throw, throw it out, you know, like the I Ching or something. <laughs> You're right, actually, because I watched that recently and um, by the end, uh, I just didn't know what was going on. All I knew he knows was, what's uh, going on. he was dressed in I was I distracted was for a while by Stephen Burkoff sort of leering and... Uh, and and doing you know like big acting evil guy kind of plays uh, like over overacting yeah, <laughs> an evil man yes but like what the fuck what how did it work what were they doing like okay so they nicked a load of money but how did it work i don't know okay. nobody knows but Nobody knows. All they, all they know is that like nobody can overact like Stephen Burkhoff. Yeah, he was the master. He was the master. Fucking giving it though. <laughs> he, was. he was absolutely like you know like he saw a not he saw a dial that went yeah. up to ten, he and he didn't just it. go to eleven because he'd seen that earlier in the eighties when they did that in Spinal Tap. He <laughs> went up to twelve. The West is decadent and divided. It has no stomach to risk our atomic reprisals. There's a nice bit at the end of that film, or not quite the end, but um, Burkhoff is like in a car and his acting is basically, there's no dialogue. He's just in the back of his car trying to chase Bond on a train and he's just pointing and shouting silently. It's amazing. It's like something <laughs> out of, um, you know, a silent movie like Harold Lloyd or something. It's incredible. Uh, what's going that... on in your flat, Matt? What? Do you what's hear they... that? Yeah. yeah, what was that? I don't know. I think maybe the exom- exomorphs have uh, finally broken through into Sichuan. I think of which, I, I watched Hardcore recently. Do you remember Hardcore, Matt? No. We're in a time of throwaway technology. I give you 30, 40, 50. And then you'd see it my way. Only some of the stuff that gets thrown away isn't dead. Uh, late 80s movie, I think, post-apocalyptic world, about a guy who's a scavenger and goes out and sort of salvages scrap metal and stuff. And he brings back this, these bits of a uh, robot for his girlfriend, who is a, a sculptor and artist. And she accidentally reactivates this, this robot that turns out to be a kind of like psychotic battle drone. And it all plays out within an apartment complex with this um Sounds good. It's, it's kind of it's kind of like terminator on acid really uh, and in fact i think he, one of the characters is tra- tripping throughout the movie um and uh, they had to sort of fight off this this reactivated uh battle droid which manages to sort of repair itself and construct a new body for itself did you never see that no oh okay I had it in my head that this was one of our sort of shared. That was <laughs> I haven't. I know of it, but I haven't seen it either. I'm sorry. Um, but I watched it again recently, and actually, it kind of, sort of, stood up in some senses, and that it still had like the the air of menace 
and it's it's got that claustrophobia of the sort of haunted house movie where you're trapped in with whatever beast it is trying to kill you and you can't escape but it featured the uh the lead singer from the fields of the nephilim really? which gives you an idea of the era sort of like kind of <laughs> at, at, at the height of goth music i don't remember him apart from the fact that he had these glasses that seemed to shine like headlamps yeah, no, they they were they um they did the goth image to the max. They did, yeah. yeah. It was like uh, his coat was covered in dust, like he'd just risen from the grave or something. Yeah, they all used to they all used to wear long duster coats and cover themselves in flour to look like they'd been you know, riding across the, the prairies for, for days. <laughs> I, I was a goth in the eighties. Is that bad? And, but, uh, I mean, goth seems to me. The thing only... is, I've listened to it again. I'm unashamedly a goth, even though it's massively poncy, like Sisters of Mercy. Like you, you look at Sisters of Mercy videos, and it's Andrew Eldridge just kind of poncing about, sort of water pouring on him, like you know. Uh, wearing a black leather jacket, looking mean, despite, you know, looking like he would probably lose a fight with um, a bamboo stick. And, uh, and... Right. Why does it do... You, you like the tunes? You just can't help but love the tunes? I think I can't disentangle myself. But also, like, a thing that the sisters had, they had, like, they had a lot of bass. Right. Mm. And I do yeah. like bass. It's all about the bass, man. Those heavy bass lines, they get me. That and the poncing about. <laughs> yeah, heavy bass lines and poncing about. That's, that's, that's a classic combination. I mean, it's... the poncing about is just off the fucking chart. Right? <laughs> but if you look at some, like, uh, Floodlands era Sisters of Mercy videos... Yeah. Like the poncing about that Andrew Eldritch is doing. Like, and let, let, let's, I tell you, let's just backtrack and consider the fact that he decided his stage name was Andrew Eldritch. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. some serious yeah. poncing. Even now, you know. if I read an article, it could be anything. It could be a film review, it could be a very serious political article or whatever. If they use the word Eldritch, I know that guy is an idiot. Ridiculous. It's just one of those words that just evokes, yeah. uh, as we're saying, those fantasy novels that um, Matt yeah. and I at least read when we were uh, teenagers. It's, it's that sort of language. So outside of the pages of fantasy novel, it just comes across as massively pompous, which I think is probably what the Sister Mercy do in spades. Yeah, but is there something, there's something charming about that, right? They're kind of... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great stuff. It's great theatre. Um, but it's, um, but I think the music still stands up, you know. He sings in an incredibly melodramatic, stagey way. But somehow it like, fits with the music. crazily. Yeah. Tune in, turn on, burn out in the acid rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I feel the same way about the doors. When I was back there in seminary school... There was a person there who put forth the proposition that you can petition the Lord with prayer. 
Petition the Lord with prayer. Petition the Lord with prayer. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer. I loved the doors when I was 13, discovered the doors, and then I went through, uh, or 13, 14, and then I went through uh, thinking the doors were shit. Really poncy and ridiculous and terrible poetry. And then, sort of early 20s, mid 20s, I started popping the tape in the tape deck. And you know, it's just good music. It is. And he's, he's got actually, a good, he's not he's a got, terrible writer. He's not he's a good not, poet. No, he's not a good poet. If you take the lyrics away from the music, it's pretty awful. These, I don't think the doors ever got over the terrible Oliver Stone film. I think before, before, before that, in the 80s, like The Cure and Echo and the Bunnymen covered Doors songs, you know, and they were cool bands at the time. Featured in Lost Boys film as well. Exactly, yeah. I think that's The Echo and the Bunnymen. And, no it's like, um, and then the film came out and everybody thought, oh my God, this band is dreadful and Jim Morrison is a fucking dickhead. <laughs> and he he was a dickhead. He was a dickhead. But I quite like I I like the fact that they they were kind of cock rock in a way. You know, it was about his penis most of the time. I and think my my favorite. Sorry, no, go on. You no, go. I was just saying. But and and so and also the music the music is quite funky. Obviously, it's very sixties. And with the organ, no one quite sounds like the Doors. You know, it's kind yeah. of they. You know, people sound like the Velvet Underground. They sound like. You know, the Velvet Underground, obviously at the same time, are one of these bands that have only increased their kind of cultural capital, capital, whereas the Doors have certainly lost the value of their currency in the last 25 years, I would say. Not, I mean, not amongst uh, rock fans, but I think, yeah, amongst the sort of music intelligentsia. Yeah, I think, I remember reading this novel, it's actually quite a good novel, years ago, and the protagonist of the novel, her brother says to her, Oh yeah, these bands are good, but the Doors, everyone thinks they're good. They're shit. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's kind of how a lot of cool people treat them. But I, I, you know, what can I say? I just love. I like their music, and I like. I like the fact. I like their style. I like the fact that he was a bit of an arsehole. Is that bad? He basically invented that rock star look. The Doors tune that I think I like the most is "Fat Man in a Bathtub" by uh, Little Feet. And it's it's them singing, well, you know, Lau George singing about about uh, the death of uh, Jim Morrison. There's a fat right. man in the bathtub singing the blues. <laughs> oh, really? The not not finding the tragedy in it. Yeah, he he, he just, uh, but it, like they rock, you know. I don't think I've heard that. That sounds brilliant. I'm going to have to check that out. Like I, I do find, like, with Little Feet, like, a lot of their tunes sound like they're just going for, like, okay, we're all shit-hot musicians, so why don't we just do some, like, jazz jamming action on our tunes and see how, how far we can take the idea of music. Whereas when they're, when they're doing their, you know, they're playing to their strengths, it's really good.
going to make my pitch for, uh, for Iron Maiden uh, as the terminally unfashionable band that even in my youth, I think you were probably considered a bit of a geek if you wore a denim jacket with an Iron Maiden patch on the back. I went to see a much later gig of theirs at a stadium in London, and it was it was utterly ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it's just sort of bombast to the max, lots of costume mm-hmm. changes, lot ridiculous sets. But uh, the guy, one of the people I was with, described it as rock panto, which I think describes it perfectly. Um, it's just a sort of ridiculous spectacle, but with some some pretty fantastic musicianship behind it. Mm. I mean, I quite like No Limits. Try Two Unlimited. Oh, Two Unlimited. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So, no, 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 there's no limits. <laughs> exactly. Inspired lyrics. It's mm. good. It is actually a good track. Yeah, I remember. I, I mean, I think they're fairly clear about <laughs> what they're trying to say. Right. You know, and as I've grown older, held back, I admire that. I admire that clarity of vision. <laughs> I do not think that many parents are aware of what's inside the game. In fact, in my presentation, I show many pictures from the inside of the books just to show the images of this game. I yes. mean, the gruesomeness of this game and the occult link to it. Well, I know that when uh, I did my message, and this has happened, I have letter after letter where people took the pieces. Now, there's sixes involved in the pieces of the game, but they yes. take the pieces of the game, they would throw them in the incinerator or the fireplace, and screams would come out because there seemed to be some kind of spiritual forces inhabiting those pieces, and children would drop out of life. They didn't want to study anymore. Uh, what, what are the pieces, for instance? Well, this game affects the most intelligent of our children. And the pieces include white witches, wizards, necromancers, the, the clerics, that type of thing. It includes evil wizards. It's a white versus black witchcraft. The good versus evil is white versus black witchcraft. And Anton LaVey, the writer of the Satanist Bible, says there is no such thing as white witchcraft. Well, being a Satan worshiper, he should know. Yeah. Have any of us played role-playing games since the 1980s? Well, no, no, I haven't. But I think... Matt was also quite a, uh, into his RPGing in his youth, mm. as was I to a lesser extent. I think that's fair to say. Well, I, when, when I moved to China, I thought I, I need something to stop me from just uh, turning into an alcoholic <laughs> and, you know, drinking too much. And um, so, so I started... I, I decided, and I'd kind of been, I'd, for a while, I'd thought, why don't I paint miniatures again? So I started painting miniatures. And then I moved cities, and I met a bunch of people who were interested in uh, playing a role-playing game. And uh, now I am a dungeon master. Um, a dungeon master plays the part. If you're playing a computer role-playing game, uh, the dungeon master is the computer. So rather than the computer drawing the landscape for you and you moving through it, the dungeon master tells you what's going on. What kind of scenes have you described in the dungeon master? Uh, I, well, I've, I've described scenes that uh, ideally you want to give the players as much choice as possible. Right. You want to sort of let them do whatever they want but also at the same time railroad them a little bit just so that they follow the plot and you, you don't have to write a whole load of new shit mm. because they've decided on a whim to, you know, just depart completely from the Save the World plot and <laughs> um, go and do something else. 
If they depart from the Save the World plot, what do they do? What I'd have, I mean, so far they haven't done that. You know, what I'd have to do is say, I'd just have to give them things to do mm. and then describe the increasingly apocalyptic sort of uh, world that they were attempting to survive in because they hadn't been responsible and save the world from the terrible monsters that were trying right. to destroy the world. And Which would probably be would probably be more fun yeah. than them following the plot. Absolutely. It'd be nice if James Bond spent most of his time trying to escape his duty of saving the world. Mm. And, you, know, you know what? I really fucking like Martinez. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I just love this shit, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you know what? Hit me up with another martini, Barman. <laughs> and another, and another, and another. Wakes up the next day. Oh, shit. East Berlin's on fire. <laughs> I'll use my broadsword. Fire of wrath. Broadsword. Fire of wrath. Broadsword. 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 I miss the idea that one would get uncomplicatedly excited about something. Mm. Unfortunately, being middle-aged and training in my cynicism since about the age of seven, you know, I, I find it very difficult to get un, uncomplicated enjoyment and just pure love of something. Uncomplicatedly uh, excited about uh, health tests that I take that come back with a clear oh, right. kind of no, Fair enough. No, that's quite different. You know, th- yeah. Things that say you're not going to die soon. Right, that's good. You know, exactly. I think, yes, mm. excellent. Beat you the devil one more time. What I mean is, is there's a certain innocence, isn't there? There's a certain innocence to films. That there's no sense of mortality. Yeah. There's a certain sense of uh, innocence to cult films, for instance. Films that don't seek out to be cult films, which we know have a sort of cynical edge to them, but like... Um, you mean like Bill and Ted? Like Bill and Ted, like um, even, say, John Waters' early films, I think he was just making films for himself. The Evil Dead movies, I think. And the Evil Dead down. movies. Exactly. I know we've touched on this before in our uh, Halloween um, story, but... Yeah, I think films that are just about sheer sort of indulgence or fun... Um, mm. indulgence in a kind of alternative universe like S- Star Wars or some of those um, sword and sorcery uh, kind of movies. Well, I mentioned Bill and Ted, which mm. is just like one of the silliest films ever. Uh, mm. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, and still brilliant because of it, because it just doesn't take itself seriously. Mm. Um, it's not got any uncomfortable sort of social mores that don't sit very well nowadays that I can recall, except maybe one of their mothers um, is sort of much, much younger than their, their dads uh, and is a sort of... Um, Hot. What's the yeah. They both fancy feeling, their, filling the hots for your stepmother is, you know, trans-historical. It's fine. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's always going to be a comedy trope. These new long-range precision guns can eliminate a thousand hostiles a minute. The satellites can read a terrorist's DNA before he steps outside his spider hole. We're going to neutralize a lot of threats before they even happen. That's the punishment usually came after the crime. We can't afford to wait that long. Who's we? After New York, I convinced the World Security Council we needed a quantum surge in threat analysis. For once, we're way ahead of the curve. By holding a gun to everyone on Earth and calling it protection. 
You know, I read those SSR files. Greatest Generation? You guys did some nasty stuff. Yeah. We compromised. Sometimes in ways that made us not sleep so well. But we did it so that people could be free. This isn't freedom. This is fear. S.H.I.E.L.D. takes the world as it is, not as we'd like it to be. It's getting damn near past time for you to get with that program, Cap. We can only now absorb half-intelligent ideas through the medium of superheroes punching each other in the nose. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is where I'm getting snobby. This is, this is, that's the thing. I'm kind of caught between this snobbiness and wanting to be enthusiastic again. Well, I think that... I think yeah, that what, what, what if you've got a superhero who's been bitten by a radioactive intellectual? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. He can riffle through books really, yeah. really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the X-Men would become, like, uh, more sort of an academic peer review group. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, would, uh, who would just come out with these amazing research papers. Exactly. Uh, you like the Sweeney as well. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that has also been screwed with uh, uh, in terms of trying to make a movie out of it. Um, oh, is that right? And, um, but I, I guess the thing I like about those sort of 70s uh, cop dramas and um, things like Minder, which are sort of semi-comedy, um, almost, it's almost like a sitcom, um, is that they are... Um, in many ways, they don't stand the test of time. They are very much of their era. So there's some kind of uncomfortable language um, and, and sort of... What kind of attitudes. language? Uh, well, as in to describe sort of uh, ethnic Birds. minorities. Ethnic minorities, women, and so on, yeah. Mm. Um, but I don't think they're necessarily uh, that bigoted. They're, they're just the scripts are written to be sort of reflective of the time and, and of the kind of... I know that uh, in Minder, um, George Cole's character, Arthur, uh, once said, he, he quoted uh, Shakespeare and said, if you cut me, don't I not bleed? <laughs> That's right. Which, uh, <laughs> which delighted my parents. Mm. And, uh, and they quoted that at me endlessly. And, that's, that, and, and through, through, you know, like mine was the starting point and then my parents, uh, I, I got a, an insight into, you know, one of the sort of, what was it, the, the Merchant of Venice, I think that comes that's from. That's right, yeah, yeah. Excellent, so yeah. Minder awakened your love of Shakespeare. I think Minder is full of uh, spoonerisms like that, that all emanate from um, Arthur Daly. Um, but they, I mean, they are total nostalgia trips for me because, like, a, it's kind of what my parents, especially my dad, used to watch on TV uh, endlessly. He'd, he'd any time Mind or the Sweeney was on, he'd watch it. But also, um, if you if you live in London, it's a kind of reminder of what London used to be. Yes, that's what I like used, about them. Used yeah. to look like um, in terms of. You know, all of the old warehouse buildings were just warehouse yeah. buildings. Not everything is commercialised. Not everything has advertising hoardings all over it. Not everything is gentrified. No, that's right. Land, yeah. land and buildings haven't been commoditized out of existence yeah. um, by a, a, a sort of global uh, super-rich elite. Mm. So Basically, that's, Russians. 
Sorry. It's basically Russians. <laughs> My name is Anton. Every morning I usually get up at 7 o'clock and brush my teeth. Then I have breakfast and go to school by bus. To engage in anything artistic or to engage in a suspension of disbelief, you have to be a bit naive. And that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. creatively, like, in terms of watching Star Wars or whatever, you have to have a suspension of disbelief. And, but also creatively, if you're going to do anything creatively, you have to have a, or even in normal business, you have to have a certain suspension of Yes, we can hear Yes, we you. Say we, something. Yeah. Hello. Matt, are you there? I can hear you. Can you hear uh, me? Yeah, we can. Yes. Yeah. Listen, we're going to wrap it up, actually. Did you want to say something finally? I don't really have anything to say. Okay, that's great. I'm going to end the podcast on that. That's good. <laughs> that's going to be your only comment in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that would be brilliant. Listening to Call in the Night Boys. Today you heard excerpts from Octopussy by John Glenn, Moonlight Shadow by Mike Oldfield, Conan the Barbarian by John Milius, Back to the Future by Robert Zemeckis, The Octopussy Score by John Barry, The Force Theme by John Williams, Hardware by Richard Stanley, Laura 2 by Fields of the Nephilim, The Soft Parade by The Doors. Fat Man in a Bathtub by Little Feet. The Number of the Beast by Anne Maiden. Captain America, The Winter Soldier by Joe and Anthony Russo. And O Yoko by John Lennon. Please legally stream, download or buy a physical copy any of these films and bits of music. And we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye.